All right, so over the past three years, Heritage has experienced tremendous amounts of suffering and adversity, both personally and corporately. We have experienced multiple deaths, both in our church family and in our physical families. We have dealt with job loss. We have dealt with our own personal loss of health. We have dealt with the loss of friendships and relationships and even marriages. Suffering has gripped our hearts and our lives with it. Suffering tempts a person to give up on God and community. It makes us to shrink back into our little turtle shells when we feel shell-shocked. Over the past couple of years, I've made this promise to you that I would present a theology for our suffering. As a Christian, early on as you begin to walk Jesus with Jesus and throughout life, you have to learn and you have to relearn what you believe about life, what you believe about God, what you believe about suffering, and what you believe about community. Because suffering is either going to leave you hardened, detached, cynical, broken, or suffering will ignite your heart and engage your mind into gear as to what this life is really about. Make no mistake, church, suffering will not leave you undamaged or unmoved. Suffering will either make you more self-absorbed than what you were before, more self-centered than what you were before, or it will make you more selfless and Christ-centered. And as your pastor, the one who has sowed his roots down here in Branchton to live life beside you, with you every day, I call, you answer. You call, I'm there, right? The one who prays for you lives life beside you. This is my fear as we start 2024, that suffering is leaving and has left many heritage Christians for the worse. And I'm going to let that statement breathe for a moment. You are not the same person for the worse than you were before that loss of that family member, or the loss of that physical health, or whatever the suffering that's come your way. So from today until mid-April, I'll be presenting this teaching series on a theology for suffering. And it's called Pressed But Not Crushed. It comes from, in pop culture, church pop culture, that old Daryl Evans song, Trading My Sorrows. You know, I'm pressed but not crushed, persecuted, not abandoned. But really, Daryl Evans um, got it from 2 Corinthians chapter 4 verses 7 through 12, and I wanted you to hear this in its entirety. Paul says that you and I have treasure in earthen vessels, so the surpassing greatness of the power will be of God and not from ourselves. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not despairing, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed. And here comes more of the suffering. We are always carrying about in the body the dying of Jesus. So the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our body. For we who live are constantly being delivered over to death for Jesus' sake. So the life of Jesus 
also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. So death works in us, but life to you. That's where trading my sorrows comes from. And really, I think the heartbeat of this series. In this series, you are going to see what suffering is, how it shakes us to our core. And God intends for that to happen. And then we're going to take a look at God's relationship to suffering, especially our Lord Jesus. Most of all, we are going to see the suffering of Jesus and his relationship to our suffering. And then in April, I think our deacon Vernon is going to like blow a gasket because we're ending with Revelation 21. We're going to see the hope and the promise of the new heavens and the new earth where there will be no more suffering, no more tears, no more shame, no more crying because the new Jerusalem has come down to earth and Jesus is forever with us. That's where we're ending this series. Make no mistake, heritage has been and is currently suffering. And I'll be honest, suffering has challenged the joy and the growth of all of us. Suffering has obstructed our view of Jesus, our view of the cross, and our view of his mission for our lives. And I pray that you will see how your suffering, because of Jesus' suffering, it's not meant to get you into your own turtle shell away from the world and away from community, but its suffering is actually meant to solidify your true mission in this life. And it reinforces Jesus as your joy and as your salvation. Because just like Anna from last week, do you remember? When her husband passes away, she doesn't go back and shrink into herself. She goes headlong into serving God. She is a beautiful example of suffering. Now let's get to our proposition today. Remember, this is the truth that drives, I believe, these two texts. And honestly, I believe it's the foundational truth of this series that we're starting today. And it's that God is sovereign over all things. We've sung about it. Now we're going to see it. And because of this, he is able to govern suffering towards your greatest good in his son. The culture we live in, the Americana culture, is a secular society. Now, by what I mean by secular is that the common American, the people that you build your lives with, some of you build friendships and romantic relationships with, they're not Christians, they're secular people. Some of your sons and daughters and nieces and nephews, they're secular people. Here's what we mean by this. Secular people do not believe that God has a real relationship to everyday living. Even some say God is somewhere out there, but there's no correspondence to their daily lives. This also includes people who go to church. Make no mistake, Heritage. There are secular people who attend church. There are secular people who pray. There may be even secular people in our little community this morning. In America, people come to church, and it appears that they believe in God because of their presence here. They're not kayaking and brunching. They're here. But throughout the week, there's no evidence. There is no proof that they are a Christian. They live a secular life outside of this 90 minutes or so on Sunday mornings. Here's the thing about secularism. Secularism rejects the existence and the presence of God in our everyday lives as a real 
force for good. Here's the thing. American secular society cannot help you to sufficiently deal with pain and suffering. America has failed its people in this regard. Yet America, at its inception, was meant to be a place where people could come, this new world, to practice and live out their faith without societal or governmental interference. America, in its, in its conception, was meant to be a place where religion, all religion, could flourish. Instead, America has become increasingly secular, that God is not real, God is not present, God is not behind anything. There is a natural explanation for it all. When you reject the truth that God is real and God is present, what happens is that you lose a God-given framework to rightly see your life as you should and therefore to rightly see your pain and your suffering the way that you should. Because of secularism, the culture that you're ingrained in, that you're educated in, the people you build relationships with as a Christian— because of secularism, America has to borrow and has to steal from Christianity. They also steal from Greek philosophy, and they also steal from Eastern religion. And what they do is that they mutilate their ideas, and they repackage them. They take the God out, and they repackage it with the secular truth. But it falls short. For example, I do not know, especially as a high school teacher, I do not know how many times I've heard white Americans talk about this idea of karma. And they have no idea that karma is a Hindu religious concept that has to do with your past life when you were a bug or an elephant and what you did then and how it impacts your life now that you've grown to the next level as a human being. That's what karma is. Here's white people talk about it all the time, failing to see where it comes from in the East. Ever heard something about karma before? I know you have. As a result, more and more Americans are growing up, and they cannot handle adversity, and they cannot handle suffering, and there's no pill that they can swallow that can help them sleep at night. As a result, this existence of suffering is this. I believe that suffering is actually the greatest threat to atheism. The present, and atheists normally use suffering to say God doesn't exist, but I believe that suffering is actually the greatest proof that God exists. And atheism is actually, there's no such thing. Suffering is the greatest threat to secularism. For a secular person, someone who doesn't believe there's a God, God has no relationship to their everyday life, to even spout out something like, there's purpose behind your pain. What doesn't kill you make you stronger, right? That all of those statements are religious statements. If there is not a force, a God, a being outside of suffering, there's no basis for an atheist or a secular person to say there's purpose behind anything. Right? Among all the philosophies and religions of this world, I believe that Christianity alone provides the sweetest and the richest understanding for our suffering. And the foundation of this idea is coming today. And it's the idea that God is fully sovereign over all things. God is the governor that we are truly longing for. 
and we will never be satisfied with any political leader until Jesus is king and governor. God governs all things, even our sufferings, towards his glory and our highest good. So today we're looking at twin texts. I do believe sister texts, one in the old, one in the new, that teaches the same truth. Now before we get to our first text, I want to share with you something from what's called the Heidelberg, you got to say it like that, Heidelberg Catechism. Now let me say a quick word about catechisms before we jump in. Southern Baptists are not what we'd say creedal or liturgical. We are kind of anti-tradition, anti-form, and we've spoken about this on Wednesday nights. Wednesday nights are coming back soon, right? That, that Southern Baptists are scared of two things. They're scared of Catholicism and the Charismata. And so on this side, though, because we're scared of Catholicism, we push back anything that sounds like Catholicism, like catechisms or creeds. That's why our governing document of faith isn't called a catechism or a creed. It's called the Baptist faith and message. We're nervous about that. But a catechism is simply an attempt to simplify and to condense what you and I are to believe. In fact, little Christian children in churches two, three hundred years ago, what Sunday school would be is them learning these Q&As and memorizing them. So when they're out in the world, they can draw upon these biblical truths. My, one of my favorite catechisms is the Heidelberg Catechism. It was written decades after Martin Luther and the Reformation, so you can kind of see why it's written in Germany, Heidelberg, okay? So Germany. And I want to get to one question from this catechism to help us lay the foundation. The question, question 27 in the catechism asks, what do you understand by the providence of God? And here's the answer. It says that God's providence is his almighty and ever-present power, whereby, as with his hand, he still upholds heaven and earth and all creatures, and so governs them, that leaf and blade, rain and drought, fruitful and barren years, food and drink, health and sickness, riches and poverty, indeed all things, come not by chance, but by his fatherly hand. How sweet that is, right? Where would Baptist be? if the Heidelberg could kind of sneak in like it did this morning, right? Christianity, unlike secularism, does not use chance as the cause for why things happen. Secularism has to. And because of that, it's anti-intellectual of them and contradictory of them to say that there's any purpose behind suffering and pain other than chance. They have to deify chance as a goddess, and that's what they do, which is why I believe there's no such thing as atheism. They just venerate and deify something else. Chance is not responsible for all things. God upholds all things. Creation, humanity, evil, suffering, prosperity and adversity, joy and suffering. Before you and I experience these things, it comes through God's fatherly hands. And because God governs all things, there is purpose and there is meaning behind prosperity and adversity, joy and suffering. Now I want to shift gears for a moment. I want to share with you a quote from a man by the name of Oswald Chambers, this London theologian who wrote one of the classic and best-selling devotionals of all time called My Utmost for His Highest. Have you all ever read that? 
For the first 15 years of me being a Christian, I read my utmost year after year. Right now, it's Dr. Keller's Proverbs devotional. I think I'm going to read it for another 13 years. I'm on year two right now. But when I was younger, it was my utmost for his highest. And I want you to hear what Mr. Chambers says about suffering. He says this, God can never make us into wine if we object to the fingers he uses to crush us. We say, if God would only use his own fingers and make me broken bread and poured out wine in a special way, I wouldn't object. But when he uses someone that we dislike or some set of circumstances to which we said we would never submit, guys in our bravado, I'm not going to do that. And he used it to crush us. Then we object. If we are ever going to be made into wine, we will have to be crushed. For you cannot drink grapes. Grapes become wine only when they have been squeezed. So I wonder what finger and thumb God has been using to squeeze you. Have you been hard as marble and escaped? Some of you have been. You've been called and you've reverted back. You've been called and you don't answer. If you are not ripe yet, and if God has squeezed you anyway, the wine produced would have been remarkably bitter. Conclusion, he says, stay right with God. Let him do as he likes, and you will find that he is producing the same kind of bread and wine that will benefit his other children. From this quote, we learn that God is up to something in our suffering. God is taking grapes and turning them into wine. Or as we like to sing here at Heritage, he's turning ashes into beauty, right? And you'll hear that song throughout this season. God is taking grapes and turning them into wine. And grapes become wine when they are pressed. But if you're secular, even if you're here for these 90 minutes and then you live as if God does not exist the rest of your life, even if you pray, you come to church, you know what you're going to do? You're going to push back every single time against God as your vine dresser, as Jesus calls him in the 15th chapter of the Gospel of John. God's intention is for you and I to be broken bread and poured out wine. We know this because that was God's intention with Jesus. That's what he did with Jesus, and we are going to remember this today. He has broken bread. He has poured out wine. And that is what he is working in you. And that is what he's working in me. One of the 10,000 reasons why God allows pain and suffering into our lives is to break us. Is to squeeze grapes into wine so we can be a part of his mission to be broken bread and poured out wine for others. But many of us push back against God in suffering that he providentially allows just so that we could see that our life is not our own. And this world is not our home. We're just passing through. So today I pray that this teaching series that we're beginning will help you see suffering, maybe from a different perspective, from the time that you walked in this morning, that you would see it from Jesus' perspective. I pray that you will be assured that Jesus took on the full damage of your suffering. You are not bearing the full weight of your suffering today. Jesus already bore it on the cross. And he bore it so that you can take on his mission. And that's where we're going today with Genesis 50-20 and Romans 8-28.
So let's jump in and let's do it. In our first point, we're going to see that God is equally present in both joy and suffering. Life is more complex than just God's in the joy, he's not in the suffering. That's why secularism fails. They want quick formulas for life and it doesn't work. One idea that American secular society has borrowed from Eastern religion is called dualism. You can look no further than the Star Wars franchise for proof of this. The idea of light, dark, Jedi, Sith, it just borrows from Middle Eastern religion of dualism. That's all it does. That's all humans can really do is steal from greater ideas from prior ages. The dualism is the idea that there are two equally powerful forces fighting over the created world and therefore you. In America, you know what that looks like? It's the good angel on this shoulder and it's the evil angel tattooed on this shoulder. You ever see people like that? It's dualism. Come from the Middle East into the Americana because America doesn't have any tools to really help you. They have to borrow. Typically, we use terms like good, evil, light, darkness, God, Satan, to communicate these Middle Eastern ideals. Christianity has a version of this too, make no mistake. In some charismatic circles, all joy and prosperity is attributed to God, and you being faithful, you're full of faith, and adversity, pain, and suffering is ascribed and attributed to Satan. And your lack of belief. That's why you're suffering. This idea is anti-Christian. Both Old and New Testament, which we'll see in a moment, teaches one essential truth, that God is completely sovereign over all things, even your most recent hurt. So let's get started with Genesis 50-20. Joseph says this. He says to his brothers, As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good in order to bring about this present result to preserve many people alive. Now, for you to understand the force and the meaning behind this verse, you need to know some biographical information about the person who said it. And aren't we thankful that many of you have gone through a preaching series here on Sunday mornings in the life of Joseph, right? See how things kind of connect over the years with each other? Joseph is the son of Jacob. Joseph had 11 other brothers. One brother was from the same mother. The other 10 brothers came from three different moms. And these 10 brothers from the three other moms envied and hated Joseph. So unfortunately, they didn't have a good dad. Dad favored Joseph and made it clear, visibly clear to the rest of the brothers. And their hatred deepened because when Joseph was a teenager, he began to have dreams from God. And he talked about it to them. So one day, they assault Joseph. They throw him in a pit. They sell him into slavery. Joseph reaches the Egyptian slave trade, and he is purchased, like cattle, by an Egyptian official by the name of Potiphar. But God does not leave his people in adversity. It's not Satan in adversity, God in prosperity. God is equally present in both phases of life. He is equally and powerfully present in adversity. So Joseph thrives in slavery. He thrives in Potiphar's home. And he is promoted all the way up to essentially the steward, the butler, the manager of all of Potiphar's affairs. And with this prosperity comes another layer of adversity, something that you must teach. 
getting that another job, getting that pay raise isn't going to solve the problems, right? Let's use American pop culture, say more money, more problems, right? Eventually, this prosperity garners the attention and desire of Potiphar's wife. And she makes multiple advances upon Joseph. And Joseph refuses every time because of his integrity with Yahweh. Potiphar's wife, unsuccessful with Joseph, then accuses Joseph of rape. And he's thrown into prison. High, low, high, low, right? But while in prison, Joseph prospers again because he realizes that God is still with him. And eventually, Joseph is made kind of a steward in the prison because he's a great administrator. And eventually, Pharaoh sends two of his servants into jail, a bread maker and a wine taster. And they have these terrible dreams that Joseph interprets for them. One dies, but the other returns to Pharaoh's service, and he completely forgets the good that Joseph did for him. Two years goes by. Joseph's still in prison for something he didn't do. But then Pharaoh, by God's providence, has these terrifying dreams that grips his heart. And no one can interpret it for him. Long before Daniel, there was Joseph. And God moves, finally, in this wine taster and his memory to speak up to Pharaoh about, hey, I know a guy. He's in your prison right now. He can interpret dreams for you. Bring them. He'll, he'll do it. And Joseph comes and interprets Pharaoh's dream. And Pharaoh's dream meant that there was going to be seven years of Egyptian prosperity, unparalleled prosperity. And then coincidentally enough, I wish America would learn this, and maybe some of us could learn this too, that in times of our greatest prosperity, we save the most. So in seven, time, in seven years of famine, which we're going to come, that's when we're the most liberal. That's when we're the most giving. When there's not a lot out there, that's when we actually become even more givers and more generous. The Joseph principle is insane. But it's biblical, and it's good. Pharaoh is moved by Joseph so much that he promotes Joseph from the prison, essentially the prime minister of Egypt. Now, fast forward to the seven years of famine. Famine hits Jacob's family. Joseph's biological family really hardened Canaan in the Middle East. And Jacob sends 10 of his sons over to Egypt to trade, to get some grain, bring it back home because they can't grow grain. There, Joseph's life intersects with his brothers again after all of these years. The brothers think that Joseph is long gone, long dead, but then they eventually see that Joseph is alive and all of his dreams, by God's grace, has come true because they were from God. The family is reunited with Joseph and they live with Joseph during the roughest years of famine. Joseph saves his family. And in fact, he saves any person that came into Egypt needing food to survive. In Genesis 50, Joseph's dad, Jacob, has passed away. And these ten brothers are deathly afraid that now that Jacob is dead, Joseph has the power and the authority to exact his revenge. Instead, Joseph says this to them. And I want you to look at the statement one more time. And I want you to look at the phrase, you meant evil against me. Joseph suffered at the hands of his family. But we see that Joseph doesn't believe that he merely or only suffered at the hands of his brothers. If you notice, he attributes the same hurt 
in the ultimate sense to God himself. Do you see that? These brothers meant, purposed, intended evil against Jesus. Let's make that clear. You want to know what that means? Let's interpret. What that means is no one forced Reuben and Judah and Simeon to assault Joseph. God is not some puppet master who forces people to do things. God's providence is more complex than that. They wanted to hurt Joseph. It was their purpose, intention, and desire. But equally true is the next phrase. But God meant it for good. And thank God for that phrase, right? Just as much as the brothers meant to do what they did, God meant for that to happen too. And that has to sit and permeate in this room for a moment. For your suffering, it's not just Joseph's brothers who meant to do this. God meant it too. Same thing with my sufferings and same thing with yours. Let it just hit the air and then permeate you for a moment. But God's reasons, desires, purposes, and intentions for what is allowed is different than the motivations of humanity. They meant it for evil. God meant the same thing for good. God is sovereign over all things, even suffering. This means that Satan is not the ultimate one who is behind your pain and your suffering. Suffering is not merely a sign of God's displeasure of you or discipline of you, not necessarily. Though sometimes those are two of 10,000 reasons why God allows suffering to come your way. God governs Joseph's life through joy and suffering. God is not less in control during suffering and then more in control during joy. God is equally and powerfully present in both Joseph's suffering and joy. And the same goes with you, and the same goes with me. God governs all things, prosperity and adversity for Joseph's good, and yours, and mine. Joseph's good, and you have to see this before we move on to point two. Joseph's good and Joseph's suffering was tied to his mission. Do you see that? Why did God mean this for good? And that is the last phrase. God wanted to use Joseph to be a part of his redemption process in people's lives. People were, to borrow from Vernon's North Carolina accent, hungry. And there was a famine. Did I say it right? Thank you. And God used Joseph and his pain and suffering to redeem them. Do you see that? Suffering is tied to mission. Now let's go back for a moment to what I said in the beginning. That I believe as your pastor that suffering has not pushed us towards joy and growth. For many of us, it's, it's caused us to shrink back and has immobilized us. It has immobilized us from our mission as Christians and as a church. This is the foundation for our theology of suffering. Before your life is squeezed by suffering, you must see that God is powerfully present in it. 
People in your life may intend to harm you. And to be honest, you have intended to harm people as well. But God intends to use all of those hurts for your good and for their good. Even more, God uses suffering to move you, like Joseph, to accomplish your mission and your reason for why you exist on this planet, on this side of the second coming. Let's get to our second point in Romans 8, 28. I do have to remind you that when we went through Romans together at church, I preached just the week of my birthday, and it was like a 50-minute sermon. It's not going to be 50 minutes right now. It may be five, okay? I really had to restrain myself, and you're welcome. But let's see the glory of Romans 8, 28. Point two, God works all things, even suffering, even suffering, towards our, towards your, towards my greatest good. We need to see here that God's work in Joseph isn't unique to him. It's not because of the blood that ran through his veins, Jacob and Rachel's blood, that God was just so enamored with Joseph. God's love and grace and mercy towards us, we believe, is unconditional and unmerited. There's nothing special about Joseph. This is the normal way that God works in his people. Jesus' suffering confirms this, which we're going to get to in application, I hope, in five minutes. But here in Romans 8, 28, I want you to see that because God is sovereign, he works all things towards his glory and our greatest good. Now remember what Oswald Chambers said. You cannot drink grapes. Grapes can only become wine if they're squeezed. God uses many things, including suffering, to make us broken bread and poured out wine to get his members on mission. And God's going to do that this year. Let's take a look at Romans 8, 28. The Apostle Paul says, and we know that God causes all things to work together for good for those who love God, for those who are called according to his purpose. The first thing that I want you to focus on is Paul's phrase, God causes all things. I was just talking with Tisa this past week, and I'll be honest, well, maybe one day in a members meeting I'll say this a little bit more. I am highly considering and praying right now sometime in the future, about transitioning our church away from NASB to ESV. One of the reasons why we have not yet is because the ESV misinterprets this verse into English in their translation, and they take the causation out of it, even though it's there. It's like, man, if they didn't do this, like we'd probably already be at ESV. We may get there one day, because NASV was in 1996, and... Whoever bought them, they had different philosophies of translation now. The 2020 is not as good as the 1996. We'll see what happens. But I need you to see that God is the first cause, the primary cause, the ultimate cause of all things. What trips up people when they think about suffering and sovereignty is this. The misconception is that causality mandates... How to say it. Causation mandates origination. You get that? That because God is the ultimate cause of all things, that means that sin originates in him. And that is a logical jump. Though all things pass through his sovereign and fatherly, tenderly providential hands, 
sin and suffering did not originate in or with God. God causes all things, prosperity, adversity, joy, and suffering, to work together for good. And only Christianity can provide a person with this framework to see their pain and suffering this way. There is no other value, no other principle, no other worldview, no other philosophy, no other religion that compares with this. Can I get an amen? Okay, that's good. Romans 8.28 is the equivalent to Genesis 50.20. It is the foundation for our church's theology for suffering. I first found this verse in the summer of 1998. My parents divorced in the spring. The judge presiding over my parents' divorce determined that my mom was unfit to care for us. So custody went to my father. But during that time, everything that our family owned was in my mom's name. So here is 15-year-old Joe with no place to live. For a season of life, my dad and my sister lived with one of her closest friends' family. They didn't have room for me. So for months of my sophomore year of high school, had nowhere to live. I went to one of my closest friends and just asked, can I live with you? Eventually, my dad was able to get an apartment at the beginning of summer. We're reunited as a fragmented family. But the struggles and sufferings of my father's own life were catching up to him. And he turned to and relied on things that all broken lives do, and they were catching up to him. And it came literally to a head between us. I had just become a Christian. And I was just thrown into ministry as well. I spent the rest of the summer living in the bedroom, the upstairs bedroom, one of our church's widows, because things were so hard. But that summer, for the very first time, I read Paul's letter to the Romans. And right in God's providential timing, when that was going on, I read Romans 8.28 for the first time. Now, many of you know, through these years, you get to learn your pastor stories, but I think that's one you haven't heard yet. Am I right? Tisa, have you even heard that one? Okay. All the pain, all the hurts, all the sorrow, in the ultimate sense, was caused by God. But though God causes all things, sin and suffering doesn't originate in him. It had to pass through his hands, before it ravaged my life. Why? Paul gives us the answer. Because he works all of them together for good. Now, the Greek word that's used here for work together is actually the literally, like I could spell it out for you from Greek into English, it's synchronize. I kind of love that. Think of joy and suffering now as clocks that need to be synchronized. When you synchronize something, okay, so we're digital now, we're analog, we have to make sure that your clock and my clock are finally in tune with a standard, right? Joy and suffering are clocks that must be tuned to the sovereignty of God. That's what Paul is saying. That is what Paul is saying about your suffering. God synchronizes prosperity and adversity, joy and suffering, for his glory, for your ultimate good, your greatest good. 
That is the foundational promise that's going to drive the rest of our series. This is the foundational promise that you need to cling to in suffering. But this promise is qualified. It is for a certain kind of person. Do you see the qualification in this verse? It is for the one who loves God. It is for the one who has been called by God. And you want to know something wonderful about this verse, and I hope it's confidence for your heart. The Greek word for called is the same exact Greek word for ekklesia, the church. Who is this promise for? The church. That's why it is essential for any church to know who is a Christian and who is not a Christian through church membership. Do you see that? Because this promise then is for them. Not for anybody out there. It's a qualified promise. It's for the church. To the church, God will synchronize all of our hurts, all of our tears, all of our joys, all of our prosperity for our greatest good. But this promise hinges and turns on Jesus. Jesus is why and how we love God. Jesus is how God works and synchronizes all things together for our greatest good. Jesus, his joy and his suffering is the standard that the clock of joy and suffering has to be attuned to. Can I do good? Was that five minutes? <laughs> Maybe six? I don't know. We'll see. Zach keeps time for me. So let's get to application. So the call for us today is this. You and I are to see the suffering of Jesus as proof of God's presence in your suffering. I was talking to a deeply loved one this week who was struggling through some relational and some emotional hurts. And I shared with him, I said, please remember that on the cross that Jesus didn't merely die for your sin, that he died for your suffering, that he is a man of sorrows, that he is acquainted with grief. And he's like, this is hard for me. I've never thought of Jesus being more just my sin bearer, not just my, also my grief bearer, my suffering bearer. And it may be a byproduct of American revivalism that we just focus on sins, 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 but not also about the sufferings that Jesus bore on the cross. So maybe shame on us, shame on America's church. I don't know. I don't know the cause of that. But this is why being secular cannot help you with pain and suffering. Secularism lacks purpose or meaning behind pain or suffering. If there's no God, if there's no force, there's no being out there, it doesn't matter if you got slapped in the face today or you lost your job or your mom died or you got COVID. Nothing matters if there isn't something outside of us. Why are you hurting? If there's nothing behind it all, suffering's meaningless. Just Go find whatever enjoyment you want until you die. Therefore, Christianity alone offers an adequate understanding of suffering. It wraps together your suffering with Jesus' suffering. Now, Dr. Keller says something like this, and it's so good. I had to put it. I had to put it. Dr. Keller says this. Suffering is at the heart of why people believe and disbelieve God. Why people grow and decline in character, and how God becomes less real and more real to us. That is why underneath it all, there is no such thing as an atheist. There's pain underneath their atheism. 
And as Christians, our mission is to be present in their pain, to help them see pain all the way through, to see the tenderly providential hands of their Father in and through them. Suffering changes everything. Suffering confirms who you really are. I want to see who a person really is. I don't want to see what they do when they win the lotto, when they get their inheritance. Though that gives us some good information, I want to see them suffer. I don't mean that in a bad way. I just want to see you suffer. Ooh, I can't put that back in. What I mean is that the greatest indication of a person's character, like Dr. Keller is saying, is their response to suffering. That's what he's saying. And the greatest example of this is the man of sorrows himself, Jesus our Lord, right? Jesus is the greatest example of this truth. What did the suffering of Jesus prove to you and to me still today? It's still echoing and reverberating from Golgotha to Branchton right now. Jesus' suffering is the key to understanding your suffering. The call today is for you to see Jesus' suffering in your suffering which I think heritage is lacking. And for heritage, for you to see your suffering in Jesus' suffering. And towards that, I want to sneak in just one more verse for us to take a look at. This is Hebrews chapter 5, verses 8 through 9. I've made this promise to you. I'm going to remind you of this promise. That God willing, unless the Lord has come back or he has taken me away, in a couple years' time, we are going to do a study through Hebrews together. It's one of the things that before my time is done here, however that may be, that we will go through Hebrews verse by verse, like we've done Romans, John, so many books of the Bible. But here's five verses eight through nine. The writer says, although he was a son, he learned obedience from the things which he suffered. And having Been made perfect, he became to all those who obey him the source of eternal salvation. You need to see the link between Jesus' suffering and your salvation. That's my goal right now, to see the suffering of Jesus as the proof of God's presence in your suffering and your salvation, okay? This verse provides one of the many reasons why Jesus had to be fully God and equally fully man. Jesus had to be fully man to identify with our sorrows and sufferings. How many times have you went and told another person when you're hurting, you don't understand what I'm going through because you haven't experienced it, right? So how much more than Jesus? He experienced it. He took on flesh. So you can never say again, God, you do not know how I feel. Now we can say it is passed through God's fatherly tender hands And Jesus' nail-scarred hands from now on. There's no more excuse. Jesus had to be fully God, though. Because there is no man on this planet that could withstand the collective sins and sorrows of a group of people. I don't even have the strength to bear my own, much less all of the people of God. Because I am just a man. So he had to be God. And he had to be man. As man, Jesus would suffer. As man, Jesus would identify. He would learn about suffering. And he learned about suffering through Advent, through 30 plus years of living. 
through the agony of the cross and taking on our suffering. On the cross, we believe that Jesus not only took upon your sins and my sins, but he took upon your sorrows and my sorrows. Jesus suffered, even though he was God's son. Do you get that? And if you're in Christ, Peter and James say, why would you ever be surprised at your suffering? You're in Christ. Jesus was God's beloved son, and he hung on a cross. Why are we surprised? That is the nature of our flesh, right? But this means that Jesus suffered to be the proof, the source of our salvation. Jesus' suffering wasn't pointless or meaningless, right? So if you are in Christ, if you are the called, if you are the ecclesia, if you are the church, your suffering isn't meaningless either. Your suffering isn't pointless either. We are a-secular. Jesus suffered to be the source of your salvation. Jesus suffered to be the proof that God synchronizes. He works all things together for good. Crucifixion and resurrection are proofs of God's sovereignty over sin and suffering. So at the cross, Jesus was forsaken. The Father withdrew his presence. Why? I think this is one of 10,000 reasons. When you are suffering, you think that God is withdrawing from you. Do you not? I do. But that's a lie. It's a lie. God withdrew from Jesus as he hung on the cross in his suffering, so he would never withdraw from you. That's the power of the cross. God forsook his son in his greatest suffering so you could experience his eternal presence in all of your suffering. Suffering, therefore, is not a sign of God's absence. Suffering is a sign that Jesus already took upon his shoulders what you are experiencing today. That's what that means. He took the sting not just out of death. He took the sting not just out of sin. He took the sting out of what Satan would want suffering to do to you. And we know Satan's mission is clear. Jesus also tells us that clear mission. Steal, kill, and destroy joy in Jesus. Satan uses that suffering for that purpose, but God uses suffering for a different purpose. Before you suffered, your suffering passed through the Father's providential hands and Jesus' nail-scarred hands. Heritage, God is sovereign over suffering. Jesus' suffering secures God's presence in your suffering and for your suffering. God governs all things, joy and suffering, and works them towards your greatest good. Amen?